software engineers and designers are divorced from the consequences of their actions. And so the people who do the creating are the people who do the supporting. And what I came to realize as I had to do my shifts in customer support was that I was not as good as I thought I was at designing software. Let's welcome Kevin to Zerb Soapbox. Thanks, Dimitri. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of a company called Infinity Box Inc. I do all the design, the interface design, and most of the marketing for the first sort of four and a half years of the of the company. And um, recently, uh, I think in April, we were acquired by SurveyMonkey, and we were based in Tampa, Florida, and so they moved all our entire team, about 10 people, out here to uh, California. And uh, the reason they were interested in us is because we built a, a piece of software called Wufu. It's a service for helping you create contact forms, design online surveys, power event registrations, and uh, process simple online orders. And basically, uh, I guess the, the best analogy for it is, is like a Microsoft Access for the web, but it looks like it's designed by Fisher-Price. <laughs> and um, it, 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 even though it's really, really easy to use, it's, it's pretty powerful. So it's available in 40 different languages. It's used by industries, markets, and verticals uh, all over uh, the world. And um, it, it has a number of like sort of very popular brands uh, using our services, enterprise companies like Amazon.com, Best Buy, Walmart, Discovery Channel, Kodak, etc. And in 2008, um, Jacob Nielsen, sort of the king of usability, actually declared Wufu one of the ten, top 10 uh, user interfaces uh, for the web. And a lot of people are sort of interested in sort of like what is our secret? So what is, what is part of our design philosophy? What, what is it that allows us with a very small team to sort of create the service that is really, really well done uh, on, on sort of uh, limited resources? And it has to start off with sort of our intentions at the very be beginning when we wanted to create sort of a software company. My background is mostly in fine arts. And I wasn't interested in creating any kind of software, software that constantly reminded you that you are working inside of a cubicle. Basically, Wufu was going to be a database application. We thought, what can we do to sort of take it to the next level? And what we were interested in building was software that people wanted to have a relationship with. Because what we noticed is that human beings are relationship manufacturing creatures. So um, with the things that we interact with over and over again, the brands, the companies, the services, we create these relationships with with them, we anthropomorphize them, and we have sort of this understanding of how we want sort of the personalities of these software to be, or we get an understanding of sort of the kind of relationship we're going to have with them based on the personalities that they sort of convey. So at Wufu, um, we're fanatical about creating meaningful relationships with our users, and, and the way we sort of establish those relationships are pretty sciencey. We don't actually um, do it with just lovey-dovey stuff, and you know, look at. Um, sort of astrology cards and stuff like that. What we actually look at is we look at the science of relationships, like how dating sort of works in sort of science, like approach new users as if we're trying to date them, and look at existing users as if we're trying to create a marriage. And we look at all the sort of the research that creates successful marriages and try to apply that to sort of our design strategy. So as far as new users and dating is concerned, um, origin story is the biggest point, right? So word of mouth marketing based on sort of like I'm going to tell someone about sort of this service or this experience I had with this product, service, or company, and I'm going to share it. And it's 
usually those stories are oftentimes the origin story. So if we think about sort of first dates w with um, individuals or other people that we have with each other, uh, we have very, very short tolerances for those first dates. So here's a good example. So if you're on a first date with somebody and you find out that they start picking their nose in the middle of dinner, that first date is pretty much over. Like you won't be seeing that person again, right? But if you're married to someone for about 10 years or so, and they're sitting in the barking lounge and start digging in for gold, you don't immediately divorce them right away, right? <laughs> There's something different there once the relationship is sort of established. And so for us, we look at all those sort of first moments, the date that we have with the people that come to our website or come and interact with our services. So obvious things are like the home page, the landing pages, the plan and pricing pages, the login pages, and the sign-up pages. But there's also lots of other places that you could sort of make first impressions. It's like the very first email you ever sent them, the account creation process, that starting interface when they haven't built anything yet and we have to show them something, uh, the login link, the first advertisement that they'll ever see come to come to your website, and then also the very first support request that they'll ever make with the service. And so one of the examples that we have, if you go to wufu.com, is that the login link is a tiny little dinosaur. It's, up at, it's right next to the login link. There's no explanation for it, but when you hover over it, it goes Wah! right at you. And it sort of makes the experience very memorable. And lots of other companies sort of do the same sort of thing. So login pages that are some of my favorite are like Vimeo. They have a beautiful login page that's done with all these really pretty um, vector illustrations and such. And um, Flickr had this really great, it was copy, it wasn't a fancy login page, but Flickr, the old Flickr before they got bought at Yahoo, the text for saying login, the login button, actually said, get in there, right, when you type in your username and password. And when you compare that and contrast that with sort of like Google sign-up pages or like Yahoo sign-up pages, you see that there's this sort of personality shift and difference. Like you don't start off your journey with sort of a smile. Um, one of the things that we were sort of interested in that was uh, interesting first for us was um, an API contest, right? So we did a third revision of our sort of API code and it was like, it's a new REST API. We want everyone to start building on top of it. But we're like, how do we like sort of get people interested in it? Because it's like pretty boring, right? It's, you know, we put some new code up there and you got to, you know, sit in your dark coding cave and make something and maybe you'll make money off of it. So we're like, well, let's have an API contest and let's try to think outside of the box on it. And so what we decided um, was that Chris Ryan and I are huge like medieval fanatics and we said, let's give away a battle axe, right? Because how awesome would that be if like, you know, in medieval times, like none of us would have survived, but wow, if we could like program for an axe, that would have been awesome. So what we did was we, we went to armor.com, got some blacksmith over there to build us a, a custom forged battle axe, Wufu battle axe. And then we said, all right, we're going to give some cash prizes, but the number one best a API contest submission will get a battle axe. And um, we post up pictures of the battle axe being built and being sort of forged and, and, and all the, like the killing of the fires. So it was really awesome. And, um, we got 25 submissions. We got like a WordPress plugin. We got an iPhone app. We got an Android app. Um, it was really, really amazing the sort of apps that we got. And it all had to do with like not focusing on money and prizes, but thinking outside of the box so that the impression, the bragging rights, the origin story of my first programming contest or the programming contest that I entered in was something that you'd want to share with people even if you didn't win. So the other... <laughs> 
way that we look at relationships are long-term relationships. So people who finally sign up for the service and we need to sustain them for a long period of time. And so we looked at marriage research and the top marriage researcher that you can look at uh, for advice on how to do these things right is Dr. John Gottman. He's based up in Seattle. He, there's features that uh, I think Malcolm Gladwell has talked about, about him. Um, this American Life has focused on him. But basically what he does is he takes married couples, he brings them into a lab, videotapes them, talking about some argument, something that they disagree about for about 15 minutes. And then he's able to look at that videotape and with an 85% accuracy uh, rate, predict whether those people will be together or not four years down the road. Right? And if he extends that to an hour and asks them to also share things about their dreams and hopes and wishes and stuff, he can predict up to with a 94% accuracy, which is ridiculous because they showed these videotapes to marriage counselors, priests, sociologists, psychologists, um, people off the street, people who are really good at marriages or people who have been together for a long period of time, and they can't predict better than random chance. So he's figured out something. He knows something. He's turned this into sort of this science of looking at people. And it has to do with, well, how people fight, how people argue. And one of the interesting findings that he found out was that it wasn't that successful couples um, don't fight at all, or they fight about just minor stuff, and the people who aren't going to stay together fight about just the big stuff. It turns out everybody fights, and every fight, everybody fights about the exact same things. Money, kids, sex, time, and other. And other is jealousy and in-laws. And it turns out, <laughs> um, and, and what it turns out is that you can actually map all of those different sectors to customer support issues that happen in a web application or a website. <laughs> so money, so the cost of the service or billing issues, Kids, if you're building a tool or service that has to cater to like their sort of users or clients or clientele, uh, those users' users are basically their kids. And if anything happens to them, they sort of get really pissed off about it. Sex is about performance issues on your website. So that's how long you're up and how fast. Uh, time is what are you working on, right? What are we doing with our spare time? So that's usually the roadmap of your application. What are you building? What features are you working on? What are you adding to sort of the future of your app? And then others is a jealousy and in-laws. So jealousy is often competition. And in-laws is partnerships, the people you are stuck with or that you've made them stuck with, right, that you're dealing with. So let's say you're on Amazon S3, and if there's issues with that, then you often sort of get customer support real issues for it. Now, what's interesting about all these sort of everyone fights, right? So John Gottman decides that, you know what? It's not that those people don't fight, it's how you fight, right? And he says, like, there's lots of, he comes up with all these sort of key strategies of how you're supposed to fight. But what's interesting about it is that if you look at a typical sort of funnel graph where you start off with, like, people login users, the sign-up users, and sort of trailing down to, like, active users, paying users, like your typical web application funnel, trying to get people to pay and become um, active staying users, it turns out that in between all the different steps of the funnel, all the places where people can sort of fall off are customer support issues. Right. So, you know, people are visiting the website. I can't find the information I need. I don't know whether this has the feature I want or need. Uh, going from sign up to trial. So I'm having problems signing up. I forgot my password. I can't remember my email address. I'm not getting the email for the confirmation page, etc. Every single step results in sort of customer support issues. And how you deal with that sort of lubricates the funnel and makes sure people get through fairly ac ac um, accurately and pretty quickly. Now, Focusing on customer support, focusing on customers to create long-term relationships, it's not a new thing. It's not something that we've come up with, obviously. Craig Newmark, actually his job title is customer service representative, the head of his company. Huge sort of 
operation going on there, even though it's done by 12 people, right? the way he sees himself is not a CEO or founder. It's a someone who helps other people at a fundamental le level. Rackspace, if you look at all their sort of marketing, they can claim that they're one of the largest technical providers. They have like, the most number of engineers, that they have the most amount of money. They have the best data centers technologically advanced. But that's not the stuff that they focus on. They focus on fanatical customer support. It's the first thing you see. They talk about their customer support people, that it's about the relationships that they establish with one another, that your relationships with them were the best that you ever have than anyone else. And then, of course, Zappos, it's sort of the king of customer service. Everyone sort of heard the stories. They actually pay people through the customer support training cycle to quit the job after they do the training, so that way only the people that stay are the ones that are committed to the mission, right? Who forego money, money and understand that this is about sort of the emotional journey. This is about sort of something bigger than themselves. And so the way we sort of tie customer service sort of into our sort of design process is we came up with this thing that we call support-driven design. And, and the way it, it, it works or what it's focused on is basically the same thing that like agile development is focused on or test-driven design is focused, test-driven development is focused on. It tries to solve this one singular problem. That is software engineers and designers are divorced from the consequences of their actions. Right? So when they, whatever thing that you create or design or make you don't follow it all the way through the end cycle, right? So agile development, all that stuff is helps you sort of like quicken up that pace, right? And for us, support-driven design is just sort of like we'll plug it in directly. And what we do is we add responsibility, accountability, and a bit of humility to sort of every person that works on something that has to be created on our website. And support-driven design is really, really simple. It just follows the golden rule. And the golden rule is do unto others as you wish others to do unto you. And so the support-driven design is basically create for others as if you had to support it. And so the people who do the creating are the people who do the supporting. And, and the reason we were able to come up with this is early on, we started off with just three founders, right? And um, when we are going through Y Combinator, we got the funding, we are building the app and building the prototype and stuff that, that we are going to show the investors, you have no customers, you have no users, and so it's the pure joyful act of creation the, during that process, 100% development. It's, it's, it's like really sort of this beautiful process where no one's sort of interfering with you. Everything you come up with is just an awesome idea. Um, <laughs> and then after launch, you find out that you have to start dealing with all these other tasks. So you can't just keep creating new features. Like it turns out you're splitting up new feature creation with bug fixing and then also customer support. And oftentimes what ends up happening is designers and developers and the founders, they're immediately like, I need to get this shut off my plate. And you start hiring people, customers for people, to sort of take that off of you, right? You, de you delegate it as if it's a lower priority, as if it's not important. And, and, and for us, we, we realized at a certain point that because we couldn't hire someone, because we had limited funds and we had to do it, that we were becoming better at our craft as a result of doing customer support. Now, in the beginning, I was not a big fan of this because it was basically a fairness issue. Chris was doing most of the customer support at that point. He was like, this isn't fair. I shouldn't have to do this all the time. This stuff is coming in 24-7. And so he said, we got to split this fairly. And what I came to realize as I had to do my shifts in customer support was that I was not as good as I thought I was at designing software. When you start seeing, you know, you can go through one or two you know, people going like, I can't use this or I'm not finding the button right. And you can call them an idiot like two or three times. <laughs> right? And you can, get, you can preserve your ego. But when it comes in like 30 or 40 times, like, you like realize, OK, there's a little something that I haven't done. There's something that I can do here. And you realize 
you know what? I could probably change this copy, and this guy will never email me again, right? <laughs> this kind of person. And so wh what was interesting is that I wasn't as good as I was at designing software as, as I thought I was. I was better at designing software because I had this feedback, this live feedback coming from the customer interaction. And I was really good at helping those customers at solving their problems because I was basically ground zero and I had all the ultimate power to sort of, sort of solve their problems for them. Like basically there was no other levels of sort of bureaucracy that they had to deal with in order to get their problems solved. And so what I'm having is the customer support that the founders were delivering is the best kind of support you can have, right? Because they're super intimate with the product and service. And so one of the other tenets is that support responsible developers and designers can give the best kind of support. They don't always do, but they have the potential to do so. And the reason I think this is, is something that I've coined um, the Voltron inefficiency. It gets over this process. And um, I have this, oh, it's so beautiful, all the slides I have here for Voltron. But I basically go through and describe, if, you've never, if you're too young for Voltron, is that every episode of Voltron starts off like this. Prince Lothor, he lives on an evil sort of starship, and he wants to take over this planet. Um, Eris, and he sends these giant monsters down there to disturb the peace, and then five sort of intrepid heroes go, and they fight off this monster in these robotic lions, right? And the robotic lions would fight the giant monster, and they would not be successful, and then eventually the robotic lions can merge together and form this giant robot called Voltron, and the Voltron would fight this giant monster, and it would not be successful, and then what it would do is like Penn and Teller this giant flaming sword out of midair, and it would slash the monster in half in one strike. It wouldn't be like a knife battle. It would be like one strike, and it's over. And as a child, all I could ever think, because this happened in every single episode, was why the F don't you start with the flaming sword and the giant robot in the beginning? Why do you start with the tigers and all this stuff? And obviously we know why. Like, you got 30 minutes you got to fill up, right? But at the time, it's super inefficient. And that's customer support for most people nowadays, right? You go through first tier. It's an automated answer. totally sucks. Then you go to talk to a customer service representative. They have troubles or they don't speak your language, or you have some kind of issue with them, you have to get it sort of elevated, and then Manders is like, oh, I can do something. They do a clickety-click-click, and then it's done, right? Um, so for us, we figure, you know, having developers and designers do the customer support, you're able to basically put Voltrons with flaming stores, swords doing customer support. And um, we're not the first one to actually do this either. Paul English, he's one of the founders of Kayak, um, he, ha he and all the engineers do support. And uh, there's this really great quote by him. It goes, the engineers and I handle customer support. When I tell people that, they look at me like I'm smoking crack. They say, why would you pay an engineer $150,000 to answer phones when you could pay someone in Arizona $8 an hour? Well, if you make the engineers answer emails and phone calls from the customers, the second or third time they get the same question, they'll actually stop what they're doing and fix the code. Then we don't have those questions anymore. And, and, and what's also interesting that they do is their level of QA control goes like this for customer support. There's a program that they wrote. What it does is it emails out a random email from customer support from the prior day uh, to all the employees and the investors in the company. Right? So it could be one of your emails that you handled for customer support that goes out to everyone in the company. Right? And if it's not stellar, you're in big doo-doo. And what's interesting about that kind of culture and what we've seen firsthand is that when everyone has to do support, the features that make software complicated 
and unfriendly becomes everyone's problem, right? Everyone start looking at, hey, you know what? My customer support shit's coming up. I notice there's no documentation here. There's no tooltips for this thing. This thing looks a lo little confusing. This documentation has been written, et cetera, et cetera. So like, there's all these checks and balances in place because people know that it's going to be their responsibility later on, and they want to have a good answer for it. And ultimately, what ends up happening is that support responsible developers and designers create better software. And this is supported by some recent research, actually. Um, Jared Spool, who uh, is a big talker about usability and usability testing, um, wrote a recent article in March uh, 30th, 2011, I believe, um, on user interface engineering. Great website about articles about usability. And, and he has this quote about this study that they did. And he said, as we've been researching, and it's about exposure hours, as we've been researching what design teams need to do to create great user experiences, we've stumbled across an interesting finding. The number of hours each team member is exposed directly to real users interacting with the team's designs, there's a direct correlation between this exposure and the improvements we see in the designs that team produces. Direct exposure, so not just looking at the documentation or looking at videos of people doing stuff, right? And what they said is like, it only works if there's at least you're doing or being exposed to these users a minimum every six weeks, and it needs to be for at least two hours. Which is interesting because in our company, we make everyone do customer support, and you have a shift every single week, and it's between four to eight hours. Now, lots of companies make everyone do customer support. So Amazon is pretty popular for making every Amazon employee has to do the call center for once a week uh, a year. FreshBooks has a two-month training cycle before people can do whatever job that they want to do in customer support. And they have this huge sort of personalized graduation ceremony for those people who move on to do their sort of job. And, and then, of course, Kayak also does it. And um, the kind of support that we're expecting from our sort of developers and designers um, goes something like that. Here's some of the metrics. So we have a little over 500,000 users on our system. About 5 million people see a Wufu form or report, whether they know it or not. Um, we get about 400 issues a week. We send out about eight to 900 emails, and the average response time for any support ticket is between seven to 12 minutes. That's between 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. And from 8 p.m. to 12 p.m., it's about an hour. And then on the weekends, um, it's every four hours, you probably get a, a response. And um, we have this, let me see, let me bring this up. So what happens when you sort of have um, support level sort of um, developers, designers do that kind of smart. So we had, this is the first, this is a graph of the first four years of Wufu. We didn't do any paid marketing. It's all word of mouth marketing at the time. This sort of nice curve graph is all our, is our user growth. And this is our sort of support growth at the time. So based on sort of what we, I think up to that point, we were only at six to seven employees. So we were able to support sort of this user growth um, with no marketing dollars, just on sort of word of mouth marketing that happened just mostly through customer support. Because our philosophy that we tell a lot of people is that customer support sort of is um, it's an opportunity to make someone into a fan. We never see it as a total problem. We always see it as you know this sort of awesome sort of, it's, it's a lead right there that's coming in. This is person that's already using the service, right? They're having an issue and they're inquisitive and they want to have it solved. They're asking for an sort of excellent experience. And what's interesting here is that the reason we're able to do it with so little people is that we also spend a lot of times on scaling customer support. Like you hear all these companies looking at like, oh God, how do we scale for the users and the system and all that stuff? And for us, we figured, you know, what we have a hard time problem with 
is that if everyone has to do customer support, right, like how do we scale that? Because the more people we hire, and we had sort of a, a profit revenue sharing scheme, so the more people we hire, sort of the less everyone is going to take. So we're like, how do we scale this, this one thing, excellent customer support, that can't be scaled with servers and equipment and machines? So um, let's see here. And the way we do it is... Um, Really simple tool. So our support is just a simple Gmail. And what happens is it comes onto a shared Gmail account. Everyone has access to it. And we just use the tags to assign things to different people. And anything that's not archived is an open ticket. And so when it just gets responded or waiting for a response to someone, it gets archived. And so there's all these sort of color-coded sort of tags with names and initials to know which developers are responsible for it. We don't track tickets over a long period of time. It's not integrated, like track with SBN and all that stuff. It's all about like direct sort of immediate customer support related problems. We have those sort of other bugs that sort of developers and designers are aware of that's in a different, different sort of system. We also ended up uh, building some tools for that Gmail. We actually built a custom Gmail plugin that actually ties in with our database interface and it shows up on the side there in the Gmail account and it'll parse through the email, figure out the email, the account name and all that stuff and it shows all the stuff and you can log into your account and all that stuff. Um, we also spend a lot of time on FAQs, uh, documentation, lots of screencasts and videos. Like, you can't launch a feature in Wufu, it's a policy in our company, without writing the documentation first. Right? All things that needs to be done to support the user ahead of time. We do lots of tooltips all over the application, so it's in-help sort of stuff. And the whole point is that help users help themselves, and therefore you'll reduce sort of the customers what they need from third-party people. We only do email support also, um, no phone support. And I did phone support for AWOL broadband technical support for a couple years back in the day. And what I found is that it's really hard to scale. Like, and it's hard to give really great customer service for it. And it's hard to prevent people from being sort of addicted to that phone support. Because one thing that we can't do, that we can do in email is like sort of give links to people, show screenshots, um, um, talk people through you know, step-by-step -step tutorial, and they don't have to write things down. Like, there's a lot of things that we can do in email um, in addition to like using you know really nice things like uh, text expander, so we have a lot of short snippets for like most common problems. Like you know I forgot my password, I forgot how to log in. Um, you know where's this info about billing? How much is this charge? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Like all the common stuff that's usually somewhere on the website, right? We could have these little snippets. You type like three words, fills it all in, includes the links to the different parts of the website, helps them learn that. The place where you can get this information faster is by doing a little browsing on your own and helps sort of reduce the customer support that comes in. Um, and our philosophy on support tools is, is very, very big. Like we actually spend a lot of time on the support tools that we build inside of our application. Almost, I'd say as a third of our time is spent building internal tools to help support sort of our developers, designers, and, and, and the software of itself. So a lot of things that we build and create for ourselves they actually don't get seen by uh, customers, but they get the experience because of the speed that it helps us generate. Um, this is actually um, reflected by a Facebook engineer named Yishan Wang. He wrote this really great article about, he's like, as I, he was part of the internal tools team. He's like, as I've come to like work with Facebook, I've come to understand that, wow, the best way to sort of save money at a company, the best way to offer this great customer service or a, a, a better sort of service that will allow us to be a lot more profitable is by building the proper tools to help us do so. Um, I wish I had a URL here. It's on the PDF. But it, it, it's, it's an amazing article that he talks about all the different tools that he built for Facebook. And it just shows like, it, behind the scenes it, it, how innovative and how sort of amazing the work that is done that sort of supports this massive sort of um, 
culture uh, that Facebook develops. We have something that we created, the P PQP PHP Quick Profiler. Um, it's a tool that we open source, but it helps us identify uh, SQL sort of limitations or design limitations. Um, we have lots of sort of internal tools. And then we also do experiments. So on um, the support request form, we'll do, we did this one experiment where we sort of saw Kathy Sierra speak. And she wrote a lot about sort of creating amazing experiences with users. And she said one of the problems with customer support is there's this sort of divorce between sort of the emotions that I have coming into it and sort of the tone of the copy that meets me when I see it, right, on a website. When I go, when I'm pissed off about something and I go to a customer service representative desk at like Target or someone you talk to in person, they see your face, they see the nonverbal cues, and they don't act super cheerfully. They're prepared for it and act accordingly. And so she said, it'd be great if we could just have face recognition, you know, on software and get it. And we're very far away from that. Uh, as far as web technologies goes, but we figured we could do is we just asked for it directly. And so we created this emotional state dropdown right on the support request form. And it just has, like, ask you if you're excited, uh, confused, worried, upset, panicked, or angry, right? And, and it's called just emotional state. We made it as neutral as possible. We didn't want to ask or have the copy be, um, how does this make you feel, right? Because it immediately makes you want to punch someone in the face, <laughs> right? It reminds you of a psychologist or a therapist that you don't want to be in the room with. And, right, and you're already pissed <laughs> off, right? And if, if you weren't dealing with a browser or a computer, they would already know that and you don't have to tell them. So emotional said we said, let's just make it like, you know, what's your browser? What's your operating system? What's your emotional state? And just get it through as fast <laughs> as possible. And uh, the experiment, we didn't actually do anything different with that. Customer sort, we always answer it as it comes in. We just were like, let's look at the data, see what happens, and, you know, See if it's interesting. And what we found out was that people had a huge response to it, right? We had all these articles uh, at the beginning we were, that wrote about, wow, I realized because they put the emotional state drop down there that someone's going to care about this and um, that someone's, some human is actually going to look at this. And, and what ends up happening is, you know, think about this. Um, when customers support, and you're pissed off and angry, right? And you need to, you can't help but get it out to someone. And you're forced to use email to get it out, to communicate those emotions out. The way you do it is you type in all caps, right? <laughs> you misspell a lot of things, you use curse words, right? And um, you waste all this time doing this emotional stuff that you have to add to the copy. It's not any helpful to us, developers and designers who are trying to like just troubleshoot your issue. And um, so what ended up happening is we put this up there and bam, it just cuts that, right? Cuts down the amount of swearing, cuts down the amount of all caps emails coming in, cuts down on sort of the tone of the people coming to ask us for help, right? They're able to now focus on the problem at hand, which was interesting. We didn't expect this at all. We also found out that most people didn't abuse this. We thought people would just, everyone would panic to try, because they thought that it would just shoot them to the top of the support queue. End up being, because I guess there's no reinforcement of that, um, that none of it happened. So most people were mostly confused about stuff, and very few were upset or angry. Um, all right, I'm going to wrap up. So, uh, I'll leave you with this. Um, there was a study done by Harvard Business Review about the discipline of market leaders. And they say basically that if you want to be the market leader in your sort of area or industry, that there's only three ways to do it, right? And based on how you want to do it, you have to totally focus and construct your company to focus along those sort of pathways. So, um, if you want to be the best price product, right, you have to focus 
your company around logistics, right? Figuring out how to be efficient with the resources at hand, right? So that way you can offer the cheapest price to the consumer, and that's how you be the market leader. If you want to be the market leader because you're the best product out there, you focus all your money on technology and innovation. Apple's a really good sort of case study for that. If you want to be the best overall solution, right? What you focus your energy and resources on is being customer intimate. It's very interesting. And so customer intimate is about focusing on relationships, doing this sort of like, um, not hard sell, but this long-term approach to sort of building equity and value for your users. And so you see this happening with sort of hotel, hotel companies and groups. And um, what's interesting about those three different pathways is only one of them doesn't require huge amounts of money, lots of people, lots of engineering or resources, right, to sort of make it happen, right? And it's anybody can be customer intimate. And one of the classic examples I give about this for our company is that uh, in addition to making everyone have to do customer support, the way we add sort of an additional level of humility is that we say you have to also write thank you cards to the people that pay your paycheck, right? So every week, all of our engineers and, and developers and designers um, have to write handwritten thank you cards. Let me show you some pictures. To uh, the, to just it's, it's a program that we wrote that randomly brings up customer names and addresses. And then people actually they love them and they're super simple. These things are the cheapest things ever. They're simple like cardboard cards. Um, we bought a bunch of dinosaur stickers from this Chinese company, and um, you know, if you just say thanks, their own handwriting. Every single week, we write these out. And uh, yeah, paying customers. Awesome people. The way it goes, and I've written so many of this. Hi, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the developers for Wufu. I just want to say thank you for using our services. You've been with us for such a long time now. And we just want to let you know that we're honored and delighted by your support. Um, people like you help us achieve our dreams, and we won't ever forget that. So thank you on behalf of the entire Wufu team. Sincerely and respectfully, Kevin Hale. So thanks, guys. That's my presentation. I hope you appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. So let's do some questions. You guys probably listening to this had some questions come up during the talk. Yes. Did you mention that we have this on a PDF that you could Yes, you can go to our Wufu, our Twitter account. So at Wufu, W-U-F-O, and it's right up there. Yes, in the back. Yes. I don't think we got much like media and stuff, you know, th those first four years. I mean, as interviews came down and as we had, you know, speaking engagements that were offered to us, we went and did those as quickly as possible. Um, but the thing is, like, you know, there's shifts. The support shifts is like there's always just someone on duty. Now, nowadays, now we have two people on duty because the level of support that comes on. But at that time, it was just making sure someone was always going to be dedicated, that they're not programming that day or during those hours. They're dedicated to doing the best job possible to help whoever's asking for help. And so everyone else is able to do all their sort of normal jobs and functions and stuff. So it's not that everyone is doing customer support at the exact same time. Yes, here. Uh, did you ever like, see something that you think is a product? Did you ever what? Did you ever see something where like one, you know, you're, 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 you're,
I'll tell you, the pivot right at the very beginning. So actually, when we pitched this idea to Y Combinator, um, what we pitched was actually a content manager. And the content manager, the way that we described it was like, yeah, so you know how you can have like the forms and you fill out the data and manage all that data. You know, on the admin side, we'll have something called reversible forms, right? And so people on the public side, like public comments and stuff, and you can have the content manager like do this kind of stuff, and you can mix and match. That sounds confusing as shit explaining it to someone, right? <laughs> so Paul Graham looked at us and was like, how about a form builder, right? And we like immediately we're like Google form builder. We're like, no, those people suck. We don't want to do that. We want content manager. We want to do like WordPress and stuff. And so thank God he saw that as a market opportunity and convinced us. So that was a huge pivot right at the beginning. Like, I feel like if I tried to explain content manager with reversible forms, I would totally be like dead in the water like from day one. Like no one could tell that story. No one could say like I had this awesome experience with the reversible forms content <laughs> manager people, right? Oh yeah, we did. And what was interesting about it was it actually helped us sort of get the funding because like he was because we pushed back on it a, a, a good amount, right? And he saw that like we had a little cojones there and it made, had him like us a lot lot more. But I mean, luckily logic prevailed in that sort of instance. Now there's plenty of ideas that he's proposed to us. He's a crazy person. Uh, that um <laughs> that we did not fly with and I'm very glad that we did. But that was one of the sort of key ones. Uh Another pivot is actually payment integration. We actually never thought that, you know, doing forms we would want to do payment stuff. But usually our users begging us, like, you know, these people I'm signing up for my workshops and registration, and I want, I was wondering if I could somehow collect the payment for them right at this step because that's like the most logical step in the lead sort of conversion process. And we're like, okay, that's interesting. And so we thought of that process, and that's ended up being a huge boon to our sort of business. Like tons of people use their payment. I think we process um, over 500 million dollars worth of payments. Uh, since we launched, so for people, so we like generate a whole sort of economy for our users. Uh, Another question <coughs> from someone else? Yes. Uh, was the premium version a big driver for that? Um, oh yeah, definitely. We knew um, at at the very beginning that we wanted to um, offer a free server, but always had a paid server. So we never launched with just free only, and then eventually added a payment. We always had both together. Um, I think it's because. We're fairly conservative at that time. I think at the time in 2006, like everyone was doing free only, and so we looked like really, really like suspenders and trousers up, like saying we're, we're charging, we're charging no matter what. We need money. Um, <laughs> and now I think everyone's sort of like gone to that model, and so they're sort of. And now we get asked all the time about like sort of our pricing experience and stuff, and what we've done with pricing. We do experiments and little things all the time. Uh, I can't answer that. I'm sorry. Um, no, here's, I'll tell you this about charging high prices and what's, why you should consider doing it. Um, I do this talk about, I do this like three hour workshop talking about freemium companies and like I, all these different freemium case studies and models. And there's a study. Um, the reason people offer multiple tiered plans is something um, in economics that you do to capture uh, consumer surplus. And anyone know what that one is? No economics. Okay, uh, consumer, capturing consumer per surplus is basically like this. Let's say um, I'm, a, I'm a poor dude and I go to this pizza place and I have my like, rich friend with me who's an investor. And we go both go to this pizza place and we go, holy crap, that pizza is so freaking ridiculous, right? The guy charges like $10 for it, right? And the rich guy goes, wow, I would have paid $50 for that pizza. That was so good, right? The pizza owner lost $40 in that transaction, right? Right away. He didn't capture the consumer 
surplus. So the whole point of doing these sort of tiered prices is that you offer multiple plans for, because you know that certain people can pay more for it. And the most logical is resources used, right? So if people are collecting more entries or using more data or need more storage, right? Those people uh, have a greater need and therefore they should be willing to pay more money for it, right? To charge only one price means that you're making this bet that the average that everyone in your service is going to use, like that's going to, it's going to be above that average, right? And it's really hard to know that ahead of time, right? If you have sort of agency studies. I have graphs that are pretty that show this. But uh, anyway, the tiered pricing plan, do the high pricing, it also does this psychological effect. It's called priming, right? And price priming basically goes, we're really, really bad at understanding uh, economics and numbers in terms of absolutes, right? It's hard for us to remember all the comparisons from all the different competitors beforehand. We only, once, what, once we see sort of set of options before us, that's, those are the options that we focus on, right? And so when you see that high price plan on there, immediately your brain goes like, okay, so this is what I'm starting with this number, if that's the first thing that you see, or if you see it within the set of numbers, right? And then what you co completely sort of adjust your sort of um, relative notions of like what's expensive and what's cheap. And so, um, yeah. Down the back in the blue shirt. Um, so, how do you balance listening to a bunch of customers with knowing the uh, Well, we have like a vision, right? So, there's always the vision that's in place for what we want to have done. And then, um, I guess you do alternating cycles. So, sometimes, um, a lot of times we're doing stuff based on like most requested sort of We had, you know, feature requests that lasted for two years before we'll implement them, right? And then we're able to go back to all those users and tell them we had the feature set, you know. Um, it, it, you know, it didn't destroy our business having feature requests that lasted that long. Uh, but we do these um, interesting sort of Spencer events for our developers designers because we try to keep it interesting for uh, the people that work on the software as well. So we used to do this thing called King for a Day, and it's actually King for a Weekend. And what ends up happening is what you do is like someone gets elected the king, and he gets to decide what the company is going to work on for the next couple of days. And then the king goes and makes his, we, get, we have like a crown and a scepter and we give them a, a whole nine yards in a, a purple robe and they go around and they go, you know, you're going to work on this, we're going to do this, like I always wanted this feature and you're, I hate this pet peeve or I hate dealing with this customer support and deal with all this stuff. And so that gets sort of done. So, you know, you have sort of the vision being done there. Um, and we also keep tons of different lists. So we, you know, every week we, we reassess what we're working on. And then every three months we have sort of a longer term plan that's sort of roughly laid out to say what we want to work on. But obviously any emergencies or stuff that comes up, you know, we, we tackle those as needed. Oh, it's pretty funny. It's right here. How did it happen? Um, actually, someone from Spectrum who, so SurveyMonkey is actually going through this really interesting um, evolutionary phase where, uh, it was started by two brothers, actually, Chris and Ryan. And actually, my two co-founders are brothers, and their names are Chris and Ryan. So they had this really interesting <laughs> dynamic when we met with them. Um, they started Serving Monkey back in 1999. And um, they grew it up to like this ridiculous revenue-generating machine. But they only had like 14 employees. So it was two of them, two other developers, and the other 10 people were um, doing customer support. Right? But it was generating millions and millions of dollars. Right? And eventually the brothers were like, oh, we don't want to go international. We don't want to do this other stuff. We don't want to do turn this. We're not interested in growing a company. It was interesting founding it. So after 10 years, they went and approached a couple of different investors. And Spectrum ultimately won. And they said, all right, um, 
well, you know, they took over the company, they put a new CEO in, and they established an office in Palo Alto, and, and, uh, and Portland, which is where the company was founded, remained a support office, and um, the Palo Alto started, and they hired all these engineers and developers, and they're building this, you know, they're rewriting the whole code structure, they have these massive visions, doing the payment and all that stuff. Anyway, so because they're going through this entire process of growing and growing and growing, they knew they were number one in the survey space, they were interested in sort of like, you know, other sort of people in the space, and they saw us, and apparently, Chris and Ryan Finley were huge fans of sort of our interface and our design and stuff. And they had us talk, and I think we talked over for a year and a half, but it was the Spectrum, who's the guys that bought uh, the controlling rights of SurveyMonkey, they're the ones that got in touch with us and we started talking with them. And I think, I don't know, it took over about two years before we sort of hammered out all the details. But that's how it started. We didn't actually approach it. We actually had tons of invest, like we only raised $118,000. So $18,000 seed funding from Y Combinator and $100,000 angel funding, and we did that in the first six months starting Wufu. And then for about five and a half years, we just ran off of our own sort of revenues. And uh, we were going like gangbusters, and we were doing really, really well, and we always had investors sort of interested, and we weren't interested in them because mostly there wasn't a venture capitalist that I met that I felt like, one, I needed his money so badly that he was going to give me intellect that was going to be helpful for the company. Anyway, um, lucky for us, the, the new team over at SurgeonMonkey is like, Actually, awesome team like uh, Selena Tobacco Wallace. She's one of the founders of uh, Evite. She's working there, head leading engineering. Uh, she went over and did Ticketmaster before she came over here. And so they, they have this awesome dream team that they're assembling because they have they're super profitable, but now you know they, they have this weird startup mentality because everyone's sort of new and able to work on new things. Thank you guys. Appreciate it.